0: All right, here we go. Are you ready for this? We're going to dive in deep. We're going to dive in deep. I was, uh, was driving to, uh, I always tell you my little stories because Tess always says something. So we stopped to get some water this morning. Normally I get Fiji. So a number of years back, uh, we were in, this was even before Tess was born, I had said Fiji's my favorite water. And I'm, this is not a thing because I've got Evie on here, but Fiji's my favorite water. And my wife and my mother-in-law who were in Aspen, that we were in Aspen, I was working at the time. Uh, at the at the club up there, and uh, she said, "There's no way that you can tell the difference between Fiji and any, any of these other waters, Dasani and this other stuff." And I'm saying, "I'm telling you, I can tell the difference. I, I'm just telling, you, I can tell the difference." And they said, "There's no way. You, you, you can't smell anything. You don't have a good sense of smell." And I'm just, i telling you, Fiji for me is the water, right? And uh, so I came home that evening. and I was exhausted. And I came home, and there was my mother-in-law and my wife with all these bottles of water lined up, <laughs> and a blindfold. And all the all the tabs taken off and everything and poured into different glasses and everything. And it says, okay, mister, you can tell the difference, right? And here's five different you know things of water. And I went through and that was a taste test with a blindfold. And I said, Mm-hmm. And I did this, and I went through them all, and I went, okay, now that number three was Fiji. And they just go, Oh, that was so lucky. That was can't believe that. That was so <laughs> lucky. I said, We're doing that again. And so they lined it up, they redid it, poured them, did the thing, blindfolded me back. And, uh, and I tasted them again, and I picked Fiji again, and she's still, my wife is still upset about that, <laughs> that I have the ability to do that. So when we get in the car, I, I, told, I told Tess, I said, I, I enjoy designer water. I don't know what it is. I just like designer water, and I said, because it's different. She goes, I know, Dad, it's different. I said, well, does it different? She goes, I don't really know. I said, well, read, read off the bottle, and this happens to be Evian. So it says, uh, delicately crafted by nature with a unique journey, journey, right? We're talking about journey, right? through the heart of the French Alps, from snowflake to you. Now, maybe, maybe flake to me, the flake, maybe. so, but, And I said, now, taste it. I said, so I bought two bottles. I said, Tess, taste this. And she goes, Dad, it's just sweeter. I said, it is sweeter. I said, can you imagine the world we live in where a snowflake could fall in the Alps, in the French Alps, and it could make its way down. And then it could go through a process and then be shipped all the way over and land in Palm Springs. And to my lips that I might preach the word to you this morning. Can you imagine the world we live in? And then I started thinking as I was praying before the service. I said, you know, that's exactly what we believe happened with the word. The word didn't originate on the earth. It was this, if you will, manna from heaven, Jesus called himself Manna from heaven in John chapter 6. He said, I, I am the Word. He is the Word. John 1.1. 1, 1, in, the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among men. As if a snowflake came from heaven and fell onto the mountains and was distilled through the process and prophecies of men. The actual Word of God, you know, part of the church at the red door, just if you're new, we take this very seriously. We do believe that this is the inspired Word of God. There are many churches that don't believe that. They they believe that it's a guide in some ways, and but they don't believe it's inspired. That it came extraterrestrially. It came from outside this terra firma and landed in the hearts of men. And the Bible actually prophesied a thousand years before the time of Jesus that it would be refined seven times in a furnace on Earth. In other words, it was going to go into the hearts of men that God had chosen. Prophets have been speaking for years about your journey to impact you in a way that you couldn't be impacted by something that originated in the thoughts of men. We do not believe this originated in the thoughts of men. It was distilled through men, but it came from heaven above. It's a, it's a glorious statement, and some of you may be thinking that's an insane statement. If this was just a, another take on reality by men and somehow it stood the test of the last 2,000 years on the New Testament and maybe even 3,500 years as it relates to the Tanakh which we discussed last week or the Old Testament, then, you know, it's man's best take. It was an ancient people and, you know, but I can't, it can't really apply to my life. I can't, can't really continue unless it's truth and the grass withers and the flower fades but the Word of God abides forever. Nothing will change what God has said about reality, it just won't. That's why we take this so seriously. So when what we've been doing is looking at our journey in the context of a larger concept, and we started here in Psalm 96. And Psalm 96 was look, you need to take it to the ends of the earth. You're you're gonna be, it's talking to Israel specifically, but you need to go to the nations and and you need to just and you need to worship God and put do away with these idols. And we find that Israel and their calling had failed, and that's what we looked at. They came out of Egypt, they went through and were baptized into Moses and into the sea and then went into the wilderness and they failed time and again as we'll see this morning and then they were cross the Jordan only two of that original maybe three million or so Joshua and Caleb made it through to began to take what physical land from physical people but we realize that this helps us understand how to take spiritual land from spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. It gives us an understanding of what our all of our journeys are, and our journeys are unique to one another. We have unique gifts. We have unique callings. But together and collectively, we are still and individually walking together through our baptism. This is the journey with Christ. Now, some of you may still be in Egypt, so to speak. You may be in the world. You may not buy into this yet. You've not yet had what Jesus described as a born-again experience, a a do-over, a mulligan, if you will, a starting, a new starting place. And you're still wrapped and shrouded in your guilt and your sin, or maybe you've talked away sin or whatever, but you still feel the oppression of not understanding or having met Jesus, and it was oppressive for them in Egypt, they were slaves. And the Bible says, if you don't know Jesus yet, you are a slave to sin. If you've not yet had the Holy Spirit planted on the inside of you, you're a slave to sin. Now, them's fighting words, I'm no slave to anybody. Over time, you'll see the oppression is difficult to lift. Some people feel a sense of "Mm, whatever until they get closer to the end and they begin to feel the oppressive nature of not knowing. What will happen when they close their eyes for the last time do they just cease to exist or do they go on this Bible gives us a, a real feel of our journeys and that's what we've been discussing so as we plot on we've been talking about this idea of the Great Commission not the idea but the very commandment of not only the Great Commandment but the Great Commission that emerges out of the Great Commandment loving God with all of our heart mind soul and spirit and then out of that overflow of love then loving our neighbor is ourselves you can't love your neighbor if you don't have the love of God flowing through you. You just can't. And so this is, again, part of our journey. What I wanted to show you before we uh, continue here this morning is I was thinking about this week how important it is for you to recognize Jesus' intentionality in walking out the journey of Israel and yet not failing. So he became the lamb that went through in an unblemished fashion, knowing he was going to his death. So as Israel failed through their journey and their calling, Jesus comes in and becomes, if you will, the new Israel, the Israel that succeeds. This is not to suggest that Israel no longer, the Jewish people aren't an identifiable people group and that God doesn't have a plan for them. I'm not, that's called supersessionism. I'm not talking about that, but Israel become, Jesus becomes the new Israel. In fact, what's fascinating, if you'll realize in Matthew chapter 2, and he's quoting Hosea 11, what, 11 verse 1, it's, it's, Hosea is recounting Israel coming out of Egypt. And he says, and out of Egypt, retrospectively, the prophet says, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, what's interesting is it is he's talking about Israel. He's talking about the nation that they had been called out of Egypt. And he refers to Israel as his son. And then Jesus, did you know that Jesus came out of Egypt? Some of you will know that from the Christmas story or post Christmas story. Some of you won't. But in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, Matthew chapter 2, so, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for what? Egypt. Do you think that's by chance? He remained there until the death of Herod. Okay. Oops, it went a little fast here. And to the death of Herod, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now he's quoting, quoting Hosea 11 verse 1. And out of Egypt I called my son. Now, the reason this is so important, of course, that referenced Israel during the time of Hosea. I don't think Hosea had any concept as he was writing that as a retrospective of Israel. He's had no concept that this would apply one day to the successful Israel, it would be Jesus. So was it important for Jesus? Well, through God's sovereignty, as Herod came in and was trying to wipe out all these young males in, in and around Bethlehem, and he was too late... That they fled and they went down to Egypt and, well, he lived in Egypt for a period of time. And then out of Egypt, Jesus came, went through, and then went back up to Nazareth where he was raised. So it's important to see that Jesus' journey was Israel's journey done successfully. Now, why is that important to us? But well, we're also called to the journey of Israel, as we can see. We're called to this journey where we come out of Egypt, we go through our baptism, we go into the wilderness, and ultimately we have a calling. Is everybody with me? So, And I know if you're just coming back and you, you, you're kind of picking up midstream here, so I'm trying to give you kind of a, an overarching summary. But that's important to understand. Now, secondly... He literally wandered through the desert prior to beginning his ministry. I mean, we all know that. What do we call that? It's the temptation of Christ. So prior to his public ministry, but after his baptism. So if you remember, he comes down to be baptized by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist looks up and said, Behold the what? Behold the Lamb of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, John would later have these midlife crisis and trying to determine whether Jesus was actually the Messiah. But at that moment, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he looks up and he sees Jesus coming to be baptized. He says, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I mean, what are you doing? And Jesus says, do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does that mean? I think what Jesus was saying is that I have to go through this exact journey, this Exodus template, if you will, because it's going to be a pattern for all people, for all time, even people in the Coachella Valley in the 21st century. It'll still apply to them. You want to walk in righteousness? You've got a journey as Christ journeys. Now, that culminates in a place where Jesus simply said, you must pick up your cross and follow me. Ultimately, any journey with God is dying to yourself and living unto Him. It's not a particularly popular message in this day and time, but it is the journey of Christ and it is the journey we must all take. Now, so if we go back to Matthew chapter 4, okay, this is the temptation of Jesus. I want to show you something this morning that I hope is both exciting, if you've never seen it, and also very liberating Okay, so Matthew chapter 4, let's start here and go 1 through 4. So then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. When? Right after his baptism. So Jesus, just as Israel did, came out of Egypt, went through their baptism or the Red Sea, baptized into Moses, a prefiguring of Jesus, and went into the wilderness. Jesus goes down to fulfill all righteousness. He's baptized the Spirit descends. He's filled with the power of the Spirit. We hear the voice, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, he too has come out of Egypt. He too has come through his baptism. This is a representative picture of Israel. Where they failed, he's going to succeed. Now, that's awesome. And But then he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What has to happen in your life before you can ever get onto the spiritual combat field, if you will, never persecuting people or killing people, as we'll see later, what has to happen? You have to be humbled and you have to be tested. It's hard to extricate the old man out of your body. It's never done completely in this life, but there has to be some substantive transformation that happens. But Jesus did it perfectly. He died completely to himself. He was, in fact, the perfect Model as we will see. So in Matthew 4, now next verse. Uh, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Now, why 40? Because Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. What could have been done in much fewer, uh, much shorter time because they failed over and over and over. It took them 40 years. And then again, as we saw last week, Caleb and Joshua were the only two that made it through. But for Jesus, he passed the tests. Perfectly. Okay, next verse. And after he had fasted, he became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, now, are you getting, now catch this. There are three fundamental t- temptations that are not unique to Jesus in his time in the wilderness, but that are very specific to all of us. And they are large, generalized temptations. The first being, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. And then verse 4 and he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So temptation, one, test number one, passed. So he's throwing out some, well, well if you're the son of God, why don't you just, what, turn this stone into bread? Hmm, interesting. But then Jesus uses the scripture and talks back to Satan, and where does he do it? Where Israel had failed, he now speaks. So let's go back to Israel in their failure, and we'll see some of the same context and some of the same language. So if we go back to Numbers chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Now hold on to your seats here. We get get pretty deep into the word here. This is not just three happy points that are going to kind of help you be happy today. We're going into the word, okay? You ready? We're diving deep. Now, it says, Now, the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Now, what's happening here? They are are whining and complaining. Well, what's the complaint? I mean, they've been freed from slavery, and sure, they're in a dry place. Can I just tell you, when you first come to Christ... It's both liberating and exciting, but it's also very quickly becomes dry because all your props are removed from you where you used to hang out and uh, you, maybe it was alcohol or maybe it was just materialism or maybe it, was, maybe it was sex or whatever it was. These were your props that gave you your happiness quotient for the day. And now all of a sudden you feel like, well, I can't do those anymore or whatever the person, you start trying to follow God and it can become a little dry. And then all of a sudden you feel these testing is upon you and it, it becomes difficult. So we began to complain. Well, this is not what I thought. You know, I tried church at the red door. I tried becoming a believer. I tried to follow, and it just, you know, it just wasn't for me. And they returned to the world. Well, this is exactly what the spirit that's rising up in the Israelites, and they failed. And the the people, therefore, cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. Now, verse 3. So the name of that place was called uh, uh, Teborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And then verse 4, the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish. Now catch this. This is called selective memory, okay? It was so good in the olden days. Oh, the olden days. Remember the 50s? You know, it was just so great. Remember the 60s? Oh, and now you have these decades now. Oh, will you remember the 80s? I do remember the 80s. It was a stupid decade. I mean, it's <laughs> when, when I graduated from high school and all the hair rock bands and all that and all this crazy stuff. I, I look back, and, but some people look back with a real sense of nostalgia, and have selective memory and they remember the high points and they don't remember having to, you know, the men don't remember having to get up and tease their hair all morning and put on makeup and all, all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that was the entirety of the 80s, but all the, you know, all the baby boomers and the, and the welt and the this and the, the 80s was just a weird, it was a weird time. But they, the, well, Egypt was a horrific time. Absolute slavery, pain and anguish and, and being driven by the whip. But, oh, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. And well, but now our appetite's gone, and there's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of uh, delium. But the people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar. And boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste cakes baked with oil. Now, by the way, this is all figurative, beautiful figurative language about what happens. When you take them, uh, when you take it and you prepare it in your own heart, your own, like you're making your own provisions, you're not just going to hear a sermon. You're actually opening a Bible. First you get a Bible and then you actually start opening it and reading it. And then studying it and doing a word study and doing, you know, when I've, been, I've been teaching men for over two decades now and some have never opened a Bible. And what it's like just to do a word study, pick a word like love and then find a concordance and here's how you can do that. And I get them a Bible to concordance and then go look every scripture that has love in it and begin to make the connections. In other words, they're, they're doing the preparation of the manna. They're, they're, they're preparing it. And then what happens? It starts to taste like oil. Oil is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's giving us an understanding of the manna. When you have to take Jesus, you can't just hold him at arm's length. Jesus is cultural icon. Jesus is teacher. Jesus is another kind of spiritual guru. You have to begin to eat the whole thing, like they did in Exodus 12, the lamb. Bring it in and eat all of it. Don't leave any over. Don't leave any of it over until night. So you're taking this in and you're working. And what happens? And oil. And oil is always a picture of refreshing. Where things were dry, it begins to be. Lubricated and life comes back, and skin goes from cracked and peeling to supple and and free and liberating, and be able to you know actually keep out the viruses and all the things that oil does. It's a beautiful picture. It says and when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would also fall with it. So that's the idea and the concept of manna. Now go to Deuteronomy chapter eight. Deuteronomy chapter eight. So you have again. For those of you who are new to your Bible, the first five books or the Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is kind of the summation right before they cross over. This is kind of Moses' farewell kind of retrospect of what had been going on. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, says, "...you will remember," Moses speaking here, "...all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years." That he might humble you what happens in the wilderness when you first become a follower of jesus you're humbled you're tested to know what was in your heart god already knows what's in your heart the problem is we don't know what's in our hearts We come and we first come to the Lord and we say, look at all the wonderful things I have to offer you. And then we go into the Word and we realize, boy, there's some real surgery that needs to happen on the interior of my heart before I can ever become a safe leader or someone who actually is taking the gospel to the nations. I've got issues here. Do you expect, church, if you've ever come to church the Red Door and find imperfect people, are you surprised by that? This is a hospital. This is a place where people come for restoration and many of you are in the wilderness now you have never started walk really in your gifting and your calling and what happens is it now's a time to be restored for the oil to be poured out for you learn to be as we've been talking about a self-feeder not just someone who's fed the word but to become a self-feeder and he says and to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not and then verse three now catch this And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord." Now, why did Jesus go back in his response to Satan in his wilderness? Now, again, this is, this is happening some 14, 1,500 years prior to the time of Jesus. He goes back and quotes that. Why? Because he's saying, where Israel failed, where they complained and, and tested, did all that, where there were their constant complaints about Christianity, would not Christianity there, but their relationship with God, all these complaints, I will succeed Man lives by every single word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. So where Israel failed in temptation, test, and humbling, number one, Jesus steps in, goes back, and what? Fulfills it and lives righteously through the test. Are you following me? Is this not cool? And I'm going to tell you why that's so important to you in a minute and me. Now, number two, uh, back to Matthew chapter 4, okay? So that's that's... Temptation number one. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. And then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, you need to understand, I, I think most theologians would fall in a place where this was happening in the mind of Jesus, that he didn't have some experience that was so radically different than us, and somehow there was a tele, you know teleporting of Jesus in body to the temple and to this. And it wasn't happening that way. I think what was happening, this was all happening in the context of Jesus having been fasting for 40 days and being in the wilderness and having that very much like it is for us. Most of my temptation doesn't come because the devil physically grabs me and takes me to a unique place on the earth. Usually it happens right here in my mind. And that's where it starts, just the idea The complaint against God starts very small, but it can germinate into something very profound. It just happens right here in your brain. So he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Why? Now he's going to actually quote the Bible. He's going to quote Psalm chapter 91. He can say, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Is that true? Yeah, it's in the Bible. So test God, Jesus. If, if you know, you're the son, throw yourself down from this pinnacle because the Bible itself says he's gonna, he won't protect you. You won't, even, you won't even trip or hurt yourself in any way. There's no way because the Bible says this. Jesus' response, Jesus said to him on the other hand, It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, let me ask you a question. Was Israel tested in the wilderness? Yes, I mean, that's the whole point. Did they pass or fail more often? They failed virtually every time. Uh, I won't even we won't even look back, but all of us, many of you, even if you don't know your Bible very well, know a little bit about the golden calf. So Moses goes up to get these commandments, and he comes back down, and Aaron's been the high priest has been strongly persuaded, and they, they overwhelmed him, and they and they talked him in, and they built a golden calf. And so again, did they test God in that? Uh, of course, they tested God, and there are many other places. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter six, verse sixteen. First of all, to get the context, Deuteronomy six sixteen, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So that's important to understand, okay? So God's saying don't test God anymore. But specifically, uh, where are other places? Number 16, verses 3 and 4, we refer to this as Korah's rebellion. There was a leader, and he rose up, and he said, who's Moses? I mean, who's Moses? I mean, why are we listening to him? Who, who made him the boss? Do you know people do that with Jesus all the time inside the church? Maybe they wouldn't say that as, you know, overtly as that, but we question Jesus' authority all the time by our actions. Well, I know Jesus said that, but I have a little bit better take on this than he did. I mean, we do it all the time. We're, we have a tendency to do that. Korah uh, 3 and 4, so they assemble together and, and Moses said, look, we'll, we'll see who's who God is speaking through, and they brought some sacrifices and things, some incense, and they assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, Moses. I'm adding Moses. That's who they're speaking to, and Aaron. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And then verse 4, And when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. Now, see what Jesus does when you accuse him or you come against him, you know what he does? Because of who he is, he falls on his face in intercession for you. Jesus would have the full authority to turn around and just go, and you'd just be gone. You would be a a distant memory in the minds of a few. I mean, it would be over, but he does, and he falls on his face. Again, Moses is giving us a picture of the intercessory Jesus who comes to die for the creation and save the world, not merely to judge it. Now, he clearly will come back, as we'll see later on when we get to the culmination of this in Psalm 96. He does come back as judge one day, but he came back. He came first to save the world and to die for it. This is powerful stuff. So Jesus is saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. There was another place where, I'm just picking out a few, but some of the top places where Israel was in the wilderness and they failed. Uh, Numbers chapter 25, this is called the sin at Peor. What happened at this thing is that the the Moabites were there and uh, and they were in the wilderness and they began to bring some of their daughters that were afraid of, Egypt, so let's just throw a big party and invite everybody, basically, right? Sometimes if you can't beat them, join them. So we're going to throw a big party, and they had some beautiful uh, daughters and things, and they threw this big party, and it turned into, and I'm sorry for the language here, but it turned into what was essentially an orgy. And they just had all these people and you say well you shouldn't say that in church well i'm just reading the bible so and we get it when israel remained at shittim the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of moab and then verse two for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods and uh, so israel joined themselves to baal of peor and the lord was angry against israel here again they're testing the lord you shouldn't put the lord your god to the test do we do that? I mean, do we do we play with the world's stuff? As if we won't get burned, Do we just continually put the Lord to the test? I mean, I read these and I go, Jesus succeeds and you know, it's my it's my every intention not to, but I, I still think I, I probably it's difficult for me to go to a day where a day where I don't in some way maybe kind of test the Lord and things. Maybe you're Maybe you're in the process of something right now, and you can just feel yourself. Even now, the Holy Spirit's, you know, you're testing the Lord in this, and you shouldn't be. He's merciful. He's long-suffering, but don't test the Lord. Let's succeed in this. Let's get through the wilderness and move into your calling. You don't need to dabble in that anymore. This doesn't make any sense for you. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. What are you doing being so concerned about all this stuff that happens in the world? Give yourself fully to the Creator of the universe. And then lastly, the last temptation is a, is a temptation we all have and that is Satan wants us to worship him. Now none of us are probably in here have been Satanists where we would go and actually literally worship Satan and become a Satanist. But Jesus was very clear in John chapter 8, he told the religious leaders that they were of their father the devil, why? Because they desired to kill Jesus who was the son look, we all have those things that rise up in us where we want to kill someone or we we take on the traits of Satan himself. So in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give to you if you'll just but fall down and worship me. How does Jesus respond? With the word. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve God him only. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This should sound familiar to you. Again, going back to the wilderness experience with Israel, where did they fail and now Jesus has gone to succeed? Well, here we have it. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. And then chapter 10 verse 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? So in other words, my plan for Israel is not just to stay in the wilderness but to actually cross the Jordan one day and begin to walk into their spiritual inheritance, which for them was land and for us it is souls, that this church and collectively in various places we are all called to go in and release from slavery. Now, Jesus is doing the work. Let's be clear. But we still have a calling. So do you see how Jesus was systematically going back, reliving the story of Israel, coming out of Egypt, going through his own baptism by John, going into the wilderness to be tested and humbled, even Jesus. The Bible says he learned... He learned obedience from the things that he suffered the bible says jesus is taking the journey that you have to take not just some oh that's jesus and look what he did we go through the same thing maybe you're in here and you say you know i do believe and i want out of slavery the very first thing I'd ask you to do once you've done and say, I really do believe. I'm following Moses, if you will. Only now Moses has become Jesus. I want out of this place of darkness. I, I, I want to walk into my calling. I, I do believe that God has a purpose for me on this earth and that I'm not just some chaotic chance. So to come out of Egypt, first thing you need to do is get baptized. The, Jesus does not require much ceremonial activity in our life but to get baptized and to be filled with the Spirit. And now what? Into the wilderness, into your time of being discipled. We discussed it last week. I was, again, quoting Robert Morris. First you believe, then you belong, then you start becoming like Jesus. You become and then you start building. That's the Great Commission. You believe, you belong. You start to become like Jesus. That's your discipleship. I know, none of us ultimately become exactly like Jesus. But there are many in here, in this church right now, and many of you that I know, that you, you, you are so like Jesus. And when I watch you, I go, man, in those areas of their lives, nobody's perfectly Jesus. But you have really become. It's moving to me. It's powerful. It's meaningful. And it's effective. And your life will mean something. And you'll stand or fall before the Lord, and the Lord will say, well done, my sweet good, faithful daughter, son. You did well with what I gave you and the journey I called you to walk. You didn't just stay in the wilderness. You actually began to build a kingdom. You got into the building stage and you partnered and you became part of a body and you belonged and well done. I want to hear that more than I I want to hear any other words in, in my entire life. Those words being heard one day drive me every day. Otherwise, I would have given up a long time ago. I, I, I wouldn't have said that Jesus didn't die. I would have, but I'd have run back to something else, and I would have gone back to my old props—the garlic and the cucumbers. <laughs> they were just so wonderful back. In. You remember how we used to party? Yeah, and then you forget how you, you know. You got drunk and you had a DUI and that led to some, and the pain you caused your parents or your spouse or your kids or whatever, you forget that part. You just remember that. Oh, remember the trip we took to Las Vegas and when we were frat brothers and all that? And you forget all the turmoil that came out of that and maybe somebody that you hooked up with in Vegas and that was somebody's daughter and now you have a daughter. You know, you see what I'm saying? It, it It turns very quickly, but we have selective memory. Be cautious. Don't test the Lord in that. Don't complain. And whatever you do, don't bow down and worship the God of this world. He'll never last. So, see, we can clearly see that Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. Through the grace of the cross, now, this is the beauty. Now, how does this relate to us? What does this mean for us? Well, on my journey, am I, aren't I going to be like Israel? Haven't I already failed? I mean, some of you may be already hanging your head, realizing that you probably, in many ways, your life is more reflective of Israel and their failure than Jesus is in His success. And if we're supposed to call, if we're supposed to be following Jesus, you may be in your own heart already struggling to realize, "Wow, I, I, there's a lot I don't look like in Jesus." See, the beauty of this is. Is that you are now yoked with Jesus? The beauty of the God. If you want to know what the gospel is in its very essence, is that you are now yoked with Jesus, and His righteousness has become your righteousness. Where He succeeded, you succeed, even when you fail. He makes up the difference. Do you understand that? So as I'm going through my wilderness, and now I and I, have to, I think I've told many of you this. So this was this was. I think even before um, some of our children were born, I was in praying one day, and I kind of understood this template, not to the degree that I do now, and hadn't studied to that degree, but I clearly heard in my spirit, Jeff, it's time for you to cross the Jordan. And, and I knew intuitively what that meant. It was time to, he was going to put me in a place where I actually started feeding others rather than just being, you know, fed. And I knew, I just knew it. And I, and I think I've told some of you this, forgive me for repeating, but if you listen to me long enough, you'll... Hear a few repeated stories, but I walked in and you know, and Laura, and she was there, and all her long red hair, and she has a blow dryer working. And I, I said, "Yeah, honey, you got to stop. You got to stop." She was in there, and she stopped she Says, "What is it, honey?" And I said, "Today we're crossing the Jordan." And she said, "That's great, sweetheart." But I mean, she didn't. What is he want? My husband is so off his rocker. And I can tell you, from that moment on, ministry has grown and grown and grown and grown. And grown. It was very soon after that that I got invited to do a Bible study, my first one to facilitate. And then that grew into two and then three and then started doing outreaches and stuff. And we began to take spiritual land from spiritual forces of wickedness. And people over the last 20, 25 years, not just me, this is Jesus doing the work. But at some point you have to say, okay, Jesus, come live in me and do your work and use my hands and use my feet but, Lord, you're going to have to make up the difference for me because I, I, I can barely tie my shoes spiritually. And the Lord says, that's the attitude I need. I don't need the guy that says comes in and says, oh, look at all the glorious things we're going to do. I can tell you as we, as we begin to outline the vision for Church at the Red Door over this coming month and what that's going to look like here in the valley, and the difficulty of our calling, and a very in a very dramatic place that we live. We can just say what well, we just have to say. It. It's a it's a strange spiritual climate here in the Coachella Valley. It just is. It's a hard place to do ministries. To my knowledge, there hasn't been a church built from the ground. And correct me if I'm wrong. From the ground, I'm talking about repurposing a building in almost 20 years. That I that I know of. Now there may be something out on the periphery that I know of an evangelical church that's been built from the ground. In the last 20 years, I wonder why that is. We have a lot of people here. You go to Texas, you can go to, you can go to Texas or Oklahoma or some of these places, and, and they, have a, they have a population of 100,000 people, and they're building a church virtually every year. Why is that here? There's plenty of money, there's plenty of resources. There's plenty, well, what is it about? Well, people come here to, well, they stand up to play and they sit down to eat and drink, just like they did in the wilderness. Will we have an impact on that? Yes, but Jesus has to make up the difference if we're going to go on this journey. I need Jesus to say, Jeff, I know you're going to fail. I know you're going to have missteps. I know there are going to be places where you don't rise to the level of my expectations. But guess what? I have already imparted my righteousness to you. You're already on the team. And when you fail, you're going to get back up and you're going to keep going. We are an imperfect church called to a perfect task. That's impossible. You can't have imperfection moving towards perfection unless you have perfection that's leading the way and covering us. That's why the Bible says He covers us with His blood. We are covered. Now, I don't know about you, but He's the model for our journey. I don't want, I'm i not following. I'm not following method, being a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Catholic or well, I'm not following any of that. I'm not even following Christianity. I don't even know what that means. We are here to call, to follow Jesus. We are here, let me say it again. We are here to follow Jesus. He is leading us in a unique way to every other church in the valley, but we're all moving in the same direction. That's to release people out of darkness, out of the domain of darkness, and into the kingdom of light. We are a missional church. You hear me that say that virtually every week. Why are we why this ministry fair? Why all this? Why Why a big thing? The, the work that goes into this thing, it's a living desert. It's overwhelming. Why? So you can bring a maybe bring a neighbor that doesn't know the Lord. And it's kind of a soft entry into just meeting some people who love Jesus. And they come out and pet some hamsters or gerbils or <laughs> whatever they're going to do, porcupines. I don't know. I mean, they can go out there and do all that and be around other people and see something different in you. You can be a light. Why do we do this? Why the ministry fair? Why all these? Oh, why reaching into the... some down-and-outers and and some up-and-outers with links and all that other kind of thing and everything in between. Why? So we can see people release from the domain of darkness, Egypt, and come out of Egypt and be baptized and belong to a family and become and then turn around and start building with us somewhere along the road. Now, that's powerful. That's meaningful. That will give your life so much Meaning. John Dixon, again uh, one of my truly uh, favored authors. Listen to what he says in closing, and then I'm going to have Paul come up. And today's the first Sunday of the month, and so what do we do on the first Sunday of the month? We we do communion. And uh, here's the model of obedience. I love this. This is perfectly this perfectly puts together everything we've been talking about. So long as we remember that our standing before God is dependent on Jesus' obedience and not our own, I want you to hear me, folks. It is entirely appropriate to view the Christian life as being fundamentally about trying to do what Jesus did, to be like him. As long as you can understand, do you get that? Let me read that again. Don't walk out of here and not understand this. Have ears to hear. Jesus would say this. if he, these were his, He would say, now, look, do you have ears to hear? as long as we remember that our standing before God is dependent on Jesus' obedience. The reason I can come to God and worship Him is based on Jesus' obedience, not because I'm a conservative or not because I live in this or because I'm a nice guy or because I... No, no. As long as we understand that my ability to go to God and worship and have a conversation with Him is completely dependent on Jesus' obedience and not my own. Now, why is that so important? Because how often do you really feel like, I'm so obedient today. This has been a great week. I was so obedient all week. I was so loving and caring and compassionate and generous of spirit. It was amazing how well I did this week. Okay, now I'm going to go in and talk to God this weekend on Sunday and worship. Some of you struggle to worship because you don't understand that your standing before the Lord is based upon the obedience that Jesus displayed. in perfectly walking out the journey that Israel failed. He said the deeds we perform are not the means of writing ourselves into God's good books. Please understand, your good actions have nothing to do with your salvation, to get it. They're a reflection after you've been saved. He says, but they are the obvious consequence of knowing that we have been written into the book already. Now, catch this. Followers of Christ daily try to copy Jesus' story into their own life story. Like him, they try to resist the temptation to grumble at God's provision. They remind themselves that man doesn't live by bread alone. And then he actually writes in BMWs either. a Reminder to me. Like him, they say no to putting God to the test by demanding signs from him and insisting that he do things their way and so on. Like him, they refuse to bow down to the gods of their age. The almighty dollar, the body, perfect body, the never-ending renovation of your current home, they say with Jesus, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. As the new Israel, Jesus represents his people before God. Do you understand that? I want you to hear that. As the new Israel, Jesus represents his people. That's you and me if you've been baptized and have, are filled with the Holy Spirit, even though you are still in the wilderness possibly. Jesus models what it means to live as the people of God. The Christian life is the last. The Christian life is lived out within these twin realities of what Jesus did on our behalf and what He showed us to do. That's the life. It's always recognizing it's Jesus' obedience. It's the only way we're even here. But because he's obedient, he covers me in the righteousness, and I go, beautiful, you accept me just as I am. But then we strive and work and, and toil to build his kingdom and to become like him, and it's hard and it takes effort and energy and strength. People say, no, 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 you don't understand salvation. No, there's the twin realities of our effort and his, his effort. And he covered us and made us part of the family, and now we do everything to make him famous. Does that make sense? This is a beautiful picture, so that was the introduction, and we're done. So we, at some point, we are going to get to the continuation of this journey. But I just felt in my heart, is this helpful for you? Yes. And and in, and in closing, I'll just say simply this: you know, if many of you will know your Bible well, First uh, John, and it, John simply says this: it's the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. Again, those are three major categories that pretty much parallel the temptations Jesus went are you complaining are you testing God in aspects of your God and are you bowing down and then those are big headings and then you could feel pretty much all of your sin under one of those categories all of the places that you depart from being like Jesus will fall under one of those categories whether it be sexual sin or anything else so as he went into the wilderness we go into the wilderness and we strive not to test God or to complain and we're working and when we fail what do we do We first, John 1, 9, Lord, would you forgive us? And you're faithful to cleanse us from our sin and forgive us of all. Forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you get back up and you keep on your journey. Don't fall in the wilderness.